Good morning, College Park. Would you please turn in your Bible to Exodus 35? This morning we'll be reading verses 1 through 29. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all of your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold and silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its coverings, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars, its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat, and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light. And the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for the ministering in the holy place the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. And then all of the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. And so they came, both men and women, all who were willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goats here, and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Lord, this is a sacred moment as we uncover your text. And we need you to speak today because we are a busy people filled with all kinds of activity. Um, we, We love our money and we use it to provide for our needs, but also it gets too far within our souls. And so today we need to talk about rest and, and giving. 
So would you help us today and would you speak to us from your word? It has been six days since we've been together and a lot can happen and our hearts can leak in terms of their allegiance to you. So come now, please, and be our helper and our teacher. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we learned about the glory of God in the face of Moses, and we saw what it meant to behold the glory of God. We saw that Moses' face was full of glory because he had been in the presence of God, and we connected that all the way to uh, the New Testament and what it means for us to have that veil lifted through regeneration, to be able to taste and see that the Lord is good, to be able to see the kingdom, and to have the glory of the Lord reflected in us as we are transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. That was last week. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the way in which God had given Israel a second chance. Uh, they had violated his law. They had broken the commandments. The ten words had been shattered because of their idolatry. So God sent Moses back up the mountain. He received a reiteration of that covenant and then came down and presented those words to the people of Israel. They had been given a second chance. All of this is leading towards an eventual conclusion that we'll come to in about three to four weeks where the tabernacle is constructed and God's glory comes. It's what the whole book of Exodus is about. Remember, it's, this book is not about Israel or Pharaoh or Moses. This book is about God, about God coming and being in the midst of his people. Our text today, Exodus 35, you could think of it like a hinge. This um, particular text links what is coming in terms of the coming glory of God in that tabernacle. And it links that to where Israel is at present in regards to having heard this reiteration of this covenant. Next week, we'll look at chapters 36 through 39. We'll look at three, almost four chapters of material where Israel actually builds that tabernacle. Remember, at this point, the tabernacle hasn't been built. Um, They've not constructed anything. All they've heard is instructions and they've received from God what they should do, but they've not done any of it. And in this hinge between where they are, having heard this reiteration of God's covenant and where they need to be, Moses gives them God's commands. And what's interesting about this text is that the two things that God tells them to do in light of what they've just heard and where they are going is to rest and to give. I find that interesting, that that God, after he tells them he's going to renew their covenant, but before they actually move and begin the construction of this tabernacle, challenges them, commands them, two things he tells them to do, to practice Sabbath and to be generous. And why does he do this? As I've read what others have written and thought about it myself, it seems to me that what God is interested in this moment is whether or not the people of Israel are going to be on board with what he is doing for them. And so therefore, he gives them an opportunity to respond affirmatively that, yes, we get it, who you are and we are, and therefore, we're going to take some specific action steps in light of who you are. And those action steps that God gives them is to practice Sabbath and to give. And this morning, I want to show you why those things are so important. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you today that rest and giving are a celebration and an affirmation of grace. That when we rest and when we give, we are in effect saying, God, I believe in who you say you are and I know who I am in light of who you are. That rest and giving are celebrations and affirmations of God's grace. 
So we're going to look at first rest and then giving, and then I want to show you how rest and giving are connected together in terms of what they do in regards to our relationship with the Father. Well, first, rest. Rest essentially is celebrating and affirming God's design. Moses delivers these commands of God to the people, and he lays out that command beginning in verse 2. It says this, Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Notice there, God takes rest seriously. He says, in fact, rest or I'll kill you. I mean, so this is a pretty serious command. It's a capital punishment. Does not the text say that? That's true, isn't it? God, capital punishment for rest. And you'll see why in a moment as to why that is such an important command. Now, what does the word Sabbath mean? The word Sabbath means a stoppage or cessation. Another word you could think of Sabbath would be the word rest. The intent, though, is more than just a nap, which could be a part of Sabbath for many of us this afternoon, myself included. Uh, Taking a nap will be part of my Sabbath experience. But the intent was not just sleep. It was not just rest. It was that one day a week there would be a different kind of work that you would be doing. The idea is that six days you're doing work, 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 work. But on the seventh day, or in our case, the first day of the week, there is a cessation of that kind of work and a different activity is embraced. Rather than simply going through life doing the same thing that you're doing all the time, there's an insertion of a different kind of activity. And the purpose of this day is to refocus us in the midst of this weekly rhythm of our activities. So that while we're, we're living in this life, that there is a realization that six days is not what life is really all about. Now, this rhythm was so important that God built it into even the creative process. Look at Genesis chapter 2. It's not just that God commands us to rest, but that he modeled it and even built it into the seven days of creation. Look at what it says. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So what's going on here is that God, who doesn't need to rest, he isn't fatigued, he isn't worn out, he doesn't lack any resources, creates six days, and then on the seventh day intentionally rests. That God chooses to not do the activities that he's done on those six days. You need to know that for God to rest on that seventh day, that was a very important and definitive statement. God designed each day, each of those six days, God designed each of those days to say something significant about himself in his creation. But yet on that seventh day, that seventh day also says something very important about him. Let me explain what it's saying. A day of rest built into the creative order communicates that creation is not ultimate. So if you're creating six days and then on the seventh you choose not to create, what in effect you're saying is my activity and my glory is more expressed than just six days. It's My glory is not just about what has happened in each of these six days. It's actually about all of these days included. So there's something significant about that particular seventh day. Sabbath, you need to know, says as much about God in one day as what creation says about God in all of those six days. 
So each of those days says something about God, but the seventh day especially says something about God because of the fact that he wasn't tired, he didn't need to rest, he wasn't tired, he wasn't bored. You need to understand that God rested, listen to this, because he could. He rested because he could. He rested because he was God. So Sabbath, therefore, was a part of God's design, and there was something about it that was meant to clearly communicate that there's something more than just creation that's in play here, more than just making things grow and separating light from darkness and making animals and even human beings, that there's something bigger that's happening, and the seventh day is meant to communicate what is happening here is not just about creation. So then... Exodus 35, 2 says, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest. God then commands that his people rest. He commands that they also embrace Sabbath. It wasn't just that Sabbath said something about God in terms of his created order, but it also said something about his people in their relationship to God when they embrace, when they embrace this mentality of Sabbath that God commanded them to embrace i hope you know that sabbath says something in terms of your value set sabbath is given a remind as a reminder that life is not about constant creation it's not about insatiable production it's not about unending labor What happens is that in intentional rest it reorients the hard working human beings in our penchant to work and work and work, and it reminds us that life isn't all about work, no matter how good that work is. It reminds us that there's something more in play here than just the constant drumbeat of doing things. And in doing so, when we rest, we mirror the activity of God, and it also affirms God's place in the world by us saying, God, my life is about you, not about my work. Sabbath gives us a different perspective. Rest gives us a different perspective. I, I don't know. I'm sure this is true in your life. It's increasingly true in mine. I find that the, the, the older I get, that I just don't make good decisions from 10 o'clock on. Right? I just don't. Life, life I, I need to be able to think about it, to pray about it, to rest. And it's amazing how many, how many times that if I say, you know what, I'm going to sleep on this so the next morning it's clear, it's evident. It feels like when I'm going to bed that everything's falling apart, everything's in the tank, nothing's going right, and then I wake up the next morning and everything is great and dandy and wonderful, right? All it took was about seven to eight hours of sleep. That's all that mattered. There's something about rest that reorientates our mind and our hearts, helps us to gain perspective. The more and more I think about it, the more I conclude that there are no real productive conversations between a husband and wife when you're upset with one another after 10 o'clock in the evening, right? 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 There's, uh, there's, there's very little good parenting that happens in terms of instruction after 10 o'clock in the evening. There's very, it's, like, it's like sanctification has just run out after 10 o'clock at that point. You just, it just, you just need to go to bed, start over, and there's a perspective change that rest brings. The same thing happens, for instance, when you go on vacation somewhere. I mean, you know this, don't you? That there's a, a different perspective that you're able to gain. You get a different city, different place, different level of oxygen, so to speak. And you can kind of just see things from a, from a different perspective. 
You know, you need to have a theology of vacation, right? You, you really do. Because some of you, you, you go on vacation and you come back, you're so exhausted from your rest that you need another vacation to recuperate from your rest, right? When, when the reality is those breaks in life, whether they're a weekly break or an evening break or a, a time period that's extended that your employer has, has given you or you just choose to be able to, um, to use that, those seasons are intended to be able to help to break the rhythm of constant production, constant doing. God has built the need for and the requirement of Sabbath into the fabric of the created order. He created human beings with a limitation. We need physical rest. But he also commanded that we rest one day a week. And he takes this very seriously. Look at, look at verse, verse 2. indicates that the Sabbath was to be a day holy to the Lord. And secondly, violating it, as I said before, was a, a capital offense. Verse 3, it makes it even more practical, saying, You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. The idea was is that you were to plan the day before so that your work would be limited on the Sabbath day. So no, no kindling of, of fire. And, and the reason for all of this is that this idea of Sabbath rest was really important because it celebrated and affirmed God's design. It affirmed that God's commands are more vital to us and not doing work because God has told us not to is more important than the work or the activity or the production that we could have done. So keeping Sabbath then was a way for the Israelites to give evidence that they really believed what God had said was true and that they were his people and he was their God. Sabbath celebrated an identity an identity that wasn't rooted in what we do or the things that, that, that were produced, but rather that a person's identity was linked to their creator. This is why in the New Testament, Sabbath just really makes sense because your identity in Christ has been radically transformed. The Bible tells us that because of the gospel, we no longer live under this banner of performance. We live under the banner of promise. Which means that if it was up to my production or my ability or, or my, uh, my opportunity to make things or do things, that, that I can't save or rescue myself. See, coming to Christ means that you come to an end of realizing that you can't really make it on your own. You need someone else to help you. And the Bible tells us that person is Jesus. And when a person receives Christ, now they understand the beauty of God's grace and then what it means to rest. And not just rest externally, but to be able to rest deeply within the soul. So that people who understand the gospel ought to be the kind of people who get it when it comes to the distinction between the idolatry of work and production and the beauty of what it means to rest in Christ. Tim Keller says this regarding this gospel underneath our rest. All of us are haunted by the work under the work. That need to prove ourselves to gain a sense of worth and identity. But if we can experience gospel rest in our hearts if we can be free from the need to earn our salvation through our work, we will have a deep reservoir of refreshment that continually rejuvenates us, restores our perspective, and renews our passion. You see, that's what this day is all about, by the way. It is that one day a week we gather to be reminded what is really important. 
Because six days we've worked and you've, you've tried to maintain a, a right orientation on what's really valuable and what's really significant. And then you come together and you sing something like, oh, the blood of Jesus that cleanses me. And you are reminded, yes, that's what really matters. That's the, that's the center of the center of the center of the center. That is who I am. That's my identity. Because all week long, all these other things are vying for our attention and begging for our allegiance and asking for us to to bow the knee to them, and on a regular basis, we need to reorient our hearts that have leaked over the last six days. So underneath Sabbath is this concept of grace. Sabbath was an indicator that the people had embraced God's covenant. And so I want to call you today to think about rest and what does it mean to rest. I don't know what that means to you. I'm not suggesting that you're biblically required to take a nap this afternoon. You can do that. There's nothing wrong with resting while watching a Colts game or by enjoying a warm lunch. You know, some of you wives or husbands who do your cooking, you may find, you, you found a verse. Now you can chapter verse it about why you should not cook on Sunday, right? <laughs> you found it. You're like, check it out. Exodus 35, 3, peanut butter and jelly. Go for it. You know what I mean? It's just, you're like, yeah, I'm free. When my parents, when I was younger, we, uh, we changed denominations, and the, the denomination they used to belong to had kind of strict observance about Sundays. Part of the culture was you didn't go out to eat on Sundays, and that may be some of your tradition, and that's fine. But the, the new church that we went to, they, they all went out to eat on Sunday. So when we changed, transferred churches, I was like, sweet! I don't care what they believe. We get to go to eat today, you know? And, and their doctrine, who cares? No, they did care about the doctrine. But as a kid, all I was excited about was the fact that there were a diff- there's a different tradition here. So different denominations, different people, different families express Sabbath rest differently. I don't want to be overly restrictive. But the point is this. The point is there's something about this day that is supposed to be different. At a minimum, it was different because you came together and were, were worshiping together. That makes today different. But the rest of the day should also be different somehow, some way, that it reorients our minds and our hearts. It helps us to remember what's really important. And friends, we need to be reminded what's really important. The world, the flesh, the devil, they all conclude, they all collude, rather, to try and convince us that we ought to go a particular direction, and we need to be reminded about that which is truly life. Let me drill this just a little deeper. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you really make gospel-centered rest a priority in your life? Do Do you see it? Or does it feel, when you're not doing the stuff that you ought to be doing, do you get anxious and it's hard for you to not check your email, it's hard for you to not know what's going on at work? Can, can, you, just, can you just set it aside? Or is that a struggle for you? Do you schedule seasons for rest, like vacation, and then use that time to really reorient and evaluate what's important, to realize this is a time not only for us to be together as a family, but also to reorient, and we're going to plan our vacation not, re- our, not around just a destination or what we're going to do, but we're actually going to plan our vacation around the beauty of what it means to reorient our family, our life, and, and what it is that life is really all about. Next, do you make Sunday worship a priority in your life and in your home? When you, when you woke up this morning, was there a sense of anticipation? I'm ready to go to church today. Dad, let me, let me press in just a little bit with you as well. Do, do you set the tone and the pace for Sunday morning? Are, are, are you setting the, the, the attitudinal direction of your home, or are you the, the most grumpy, the, the, the last one up? 
I mean, I have a vision of what your home should be like. You should be the first one up. You got the praise music going. The eggs are flipping. Kids are coming down. You say, hallelujah, it's Sunday. (laughs) It's Sunday. It's the best day of the week. Set the tone as opposed to, oh, my word. We got to do what? Do you plan the night before so the Lord's Day can be different? When our kids were little, nothing was more frustrating than trying to get little kids out the door in time to get to church. I know, I get that. And so we, we actually, we, we lay all the clothes out the night before. You could actually like see like the rapture had happened or something. Like these little clothes are all laid out. Or the kids could run down the hallway, slide into their clothes or something like that. We wanted everything to be just so. And here's why. Because we found that missing socks create sin. That's what they did. And so we thought, you know what, to minimize issues, we're going to have it all laid out. That's why yesterday I went and gassed up my car in advance of Sunday. I ironed the shirt the night before. You know why? Because I hate it when I get in the car and the Lord's Day has just begun and I look at the gas tank and go, rats! And I'm already frustrated. So do you think of the Lord's Day as, look, this is important enough for us to plan for and to prepare for. When you're here, does your heart engage in worship? Do you listen with attentiveness? Do you connect with people after the Lord's Day? Or is this just all about you coming, check, and going? Is that all it is? Instead of realizing you are here today to reorient your mind and heart. You need the reorientation because all week long we have collected the remnants of the world, the flesh, and the temptations of the enemy. And we need to remove those things from us and say, I need to be reminded what is really what life is really all about. And then finally, and this, this may get a little personal, are you basing the pace of your family, talking about your work schedule and also your kids' schedule, on your value set or the value set of your neighbors and peers? So when I moved from another community to this one, it's remarkable to me the amount of opportunities that kids and families have in this particular area, not only because it's a large city, but also because it's Hamilton County and all the things that go along with this. And those of you who live in other, other counties, the same thing. But I, I look around at all the things that kids are, 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 are doing and families are involved and they're moving kids from point A to point B to this and that and this and that and this and that and this and that. And you look around and all your neighbors are doing it and all your friends are doing it and all the kids at school are doing it. So it's everyone else is doing it. So you ought to be doing it. And pretty soon you start getting to this pace and no one stops to ask the question, hey, should we be doing this? And someone needs to ask the question, hey, is this really, really, really worth it having a frazzled family and a worn out life and a a schedule that's absolutely crazy all for the hopes of what? What is it that we're striving after and what is it that we want? And I'm not saying that your life shouldn't have lots of activities in it and things of that sort. I'm just saying be careful because when you start to look around at other people and you base your life based upon what they do, the reality is that pace gets faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. The fact of the matter is, is that mobile technology and wireless internet made it possible to work just about anywhere. And the reality is, is many of you are working just about anywhere. Sending emails way too late at night, checking stuff that you don't need to be checking on in the middle of a day, maybe even in the middle of church or something like that, right? I see you, I see you do it, so it's... You're like, no, I'm reading my Bible. I'm like, not like this, you're not, you know, so... It's all right, it's all right. We just, we just write your name down. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Here's the deal. You know what Sabbath does? Sabbath declares your allegiance to God. It declares 
God, I'm dependent on your grace. Sabbath is a counterculture. Listen, Sabbath is a countercultural statement that says my identity is rooted in God, not myself, not my work, and not what I produce. It is a countercultural statement that affirms God's place in your life. So today, I just want to call you, think differently about your life today. That's what this day is supposed to be about. Now, that's rest. Secondly, let's talk about giving. So what is giving? Giving is celebrating and affirming God's provision. So while, while rest celebrated and affirmed, affirmed God's design, giving celebrates and affirms God's provision. It's fascinating to me that rather than God just creating the tabernacle, which he could have done, I mean, God, he's got all sorts of resources, and yet rather than just saying, here's the tabernacle, I made it for you, go worship, he invites them to build it, to give to it so that it can be provided for. Look at verse 5 of Exodus 35. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord, Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. And then here's the list. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, fine twisted linen, fine twined linen, goat's hairs, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breast piece. So, In other words, you hear the breadth of the things that are there. So first you just need to notice all of the things that are listed. The idea is that no one person is going to possibly possess all of these things. So that there was a broad range of things that were to be given and brought for the construction of this tabernacle. In other words, the people were to look in the stuff that they had and then give. So their giving needed to come from the stuff that they owned. Why is that important? Here's why. Because there is a tendency to give through other people's checkbooks. The the tendency is to think, well, you know who really needs to give are all the people who are loaded. They need to give. Whoever those people are, right? They they need to give. And so therefore we think, well, we're going to let the people who've got lots of stuff give, but I'm not going to give because I really don't have that much. And the idea of what uh, Moses is saying here, what God is, is, is instructing the people in, is the fact that there is to be a wide swath of the kind of things that are given, that people are to give from their own resources. You may not have a lot, but the fact of the matter is, as I'll show you in a moment, it's really still important for you to give. In fact, I'll I'll challenge you a little bit because you get kind of a mindset that goes something like this. You know what? I can't really give right now, but when I'm making this, then I'll start giving. Here's the thing. No, you won't. You won't. The fact of the matter is it actually gets harder to give when you make more money because the number gets so big. And you're like, whoa, now it's not can we give. It's like, wow, that's a lot of money. And, and then what happens is you get into a new peer class and you start looking around and everyone else's standard of living has increased as you've kind of gone through life and you look around and everybody else is, is, is buying certain things, they're, they're, they're living a particular way and you always feel like you're behind the curve. You feel like you're not really in the kind of class of people that you really are in and you always think, boy, if we could just be in the next class, the next socioeconomic group, then we could really be happy, really be whole and really give. And the fact of the matter is that's never going to happen. Because when you get into that class, there's always somebody who's a little bit ahead of you. Always, always, always. You're always going to be poorer than you think you really are. No, rephrase that. That's reverse. You always think you're poorer than you really are. That's what I meant to say. There's always this sense that you're behind, and the fact of the matter is you are, but yet you're really not. So 
The idea in Exodus 35 is that God wants us to give. Now, all these gifts were then put to good use. If you look at verses 10 to 19, you would see all of the things that are listed. And it's all the stuff that God has already given them instructions on. The structure of the tabernacle, the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, the curtains, the holy garments, everything. Everything that we've talked about before in chapters 25 to 31, it's all here. And the thing is is that God uses the contributions of the people to create this formal worship center. So he uses their stuff. It's amazing. God uses the financial resources of his children, even though he owns it all anyways, in order to facilitate worship of himself. It's beautiful. The second thing is, the text shows us here the importance of heart motivation when it comes to giving. Look at verse 5. This is the first time it shows up. It says, whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. So there it is, that idea of generous heart, that God invites people to give, but not only does he invite them to give, but they have to give from a right heart perspective. And, and the reason, I, I think, is fairly obvious, because God doesn't need our money, doesn't need our material. That giving really isn't at the foundation about the provision of material. It's about a conduit for worship. That giving says something about our relationship with God, and for that matter, it says something about even our own soul. So this this shows up other places. Let me quickly show you this, this idea of heart motivation. Verse 21 says, And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him. So the idea is this internal motivation. And then in verse 22, so they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart. They brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets. So there it is again, this willing heart. And then in uh, verse 26, there it is again. All the women whose hearts stirred them. Again, there's the idea these women are actually using their gifts and their abilities. They're, they're making things, part of the, the, the textiles that were used. And then finally in verse 29, all the men and the women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything to the work of the Lord. So the idea all throughout this text, repeated like five, maybe even six times, is the idea that the heart motivation behind the giving is really, really important. In fact, I would argue the heart condition is everything. In fact, Paul echoes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is in regards to being a cheerful giver. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So God doesn't want someone to give reluctantly like, I don't want to do this. Doesn't want someone to give, oh, I have to do this. That's not true giving. That's paying taxes. Right? (laughs) Nobody, no, 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 nobody's the same person. Is that okay to say? No, normal, that's not right. Here's what I want to say. Nobody pays the IRS as a cheerful person, right? You don't don't pay taxes cheerfully. Woo-hoo, I got to do this. It's reluctantly, it's under compulsion. You can't treat God like the IRS. Or better, you can, but you shouldn't. Instead, it's like a parent giving a child a gift. Or better, it's like a child giving a parent a gift. Remember those moms and dads growing up? As your kids... I remember little things that my kids have given me. They took, you know, wires from the garage and duct tape and everything else. And, you know, or they put it all together. Here, Dad! 
you know, this beautiful thing that was absolutely unusable and not very attractive. But the reality was, I loved it. Or I remember when we went camping one time, my kids saved a bunch of their allowance and they, they, um, they put a bunch of quarters in a bag because back, back then you actually had these boxes that had newspapers in them and you put money in it and you pulled it out and, and uh, there, were, there were newspapers in this campground. So they gave me their quarters in order to buy a newspaper while on vacation. And it was just a little bit of money, but it was a bunch of money to them. And I had given them that money and then they gave it back to me. And that meant the world. Why? Because it didn't matter about the amount it was the heart behind it. If you've ever received a gift from somebody that didn't have that heart, you know it's just miserable. Well, why'd you do this? Because I have to, because you get mad if I don't give you a gift. That's not a gift, right? That's a debt. No one enjoys that. Giving was not just about meeting the need. It was about worship. It was that which affirmed their allegiance. And as well, God designed it this way because it was really good for their hearts to give. Because the Bible tells us that where our money goes, our heart follows. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says something that's really important. It puts us a little bit on thin ice this morning as we talk about this, because I know this is personal and I, I know this is kind of invasive. You may be here today, you're like, oh, I'm talking about money. We don't do this often, but it's in the text. And the fact of the matter is, if you're honest, you will acknowledge that there is a connection between your heart and where your money goes. In other words, you spend money on the things that you love. You do. And so therefore, by giving, we affirm and we we in effect preach the truth to our hearts that we really do value God and His kingdom. So I'm going to press this. I hope you know I love you. I'm going to press this. I'm just going to be straight up. I'm going to say this. If, if you don't give, and I, I don't mean just to this church, I mean to, to anything. I think you're, you're obligated, I think, to give to your local church. I'm not telling you how much percentage. That's up to you to figure out. But what I'm saying, if you don't give, and your pattern of your life is you are not giving, I'm telling you that is a bad thing for your soul, and it's a bad sign regarding where you're at in your relationship with Christ. You, you can't tell me that I am so in love with Jesus and have it not show up in how you handle your money. You cannot. That doesn't work. Something's not right there. That's what the Bible says. Giving is ultimately a tangible expression of our belief in God. It is a way that we affirm, I believe in you. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 9 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It means, God, I believe that you're able to meet my needs better than my bank account. I believe that you're the one that controls the, 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 the lens through which my boss sees me. You're the one that, that controls the trajectory of my career. You're you're the one who can help the ends to meet in miraculous ways. You're the one, God, who at the end of the day, all of this is about, and I trust in you more than the security that my money brings. So in light of this, like I did in the other section, let me just ask you some questions. Do you see the connection today? I hope you do. Do you see the connection between understanding who God is and giving you see the connection that, that where your treasure is, your heart will follow, that God doesn't need your money, but you need to give. Do, do you realize while God doesn't need your money, that it really is good for you to give, that there's something important in your soul that happens when you give? 
Do you realize and do you see that when you give, it affirms your trust in God? It is a tangible way for you to say, God, I trust you. It's a tangible way to say, God, I am banking my life on your economy, not the economy of the world around me. And the last thing is, I just ask you, are you a joyful, cheerful giver? Or is there an obligation sort of sense within your soul? It may be that husband and wife, typically one person is a little more cheerful in their giving than the other. That other person thinks the cheerful person is delusional. But the fact of the matter is, is one person is usually more cheerful than the other. And maybe you need to grow in that cheerfulness and say, you know what, this is right. I know it creates some tension, but it's the right thing to do. You see, giving is a powerful statement, as is Sabbath rest. Giving communicates that, God, I trust you, and I believe in you, and I love you, and you are more valuable to me than what this money would buy me or get me in this world. That's what, that's what giving does. And that is why on the hinge between where the people of God are and where they're going to go, God t- tells them, be sure you rest, and then be sure you give. Now, let me link these two things together. What what is the connection between rest and giving? How are they connected in terms of their spiritual value? Let me give you just five applications, five ways that these things are linked together. Here they are quickly. First, these things, rest and giving, remind us that work and possessions are not ultimate. Here's the problem. The problem is that work and activity and money and possessions are a part of the cultural pressure of performance that's around us. You live in a world that is entirely devoted to performance. Performance, 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 performance. Do, 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 do. And what happens is that rest and giving remind us that these things are not ultimate. The gravitational pull in our culture is toward materialism and towards getting your identity from what you do. And what happens is that rest and giving shatter this false notion. And when you rest and when you give, you are making a statement to your soul that my work doesn't define me and my possessions will not hold me. So therefore you need to rest and you need to give. Secondly, both rest and giving create a gap, a gap that is filled by faith. When you rest, You're choosing to not use time that you could have used to do things that may have gotten you ahead. And you may work in an environment where other people, they're not resting. I mean, you can see when they send emails at 1.30 in the morning. And they're working hard, they're working hard, they're working hard. And there's this pressure, i got to work as hard as they do because they're not resting, so how can I rest? And when you rest, it creates a faith gap. A gap between God, I'm here, and everybody else seems like they're here, and I need to fill in this gap. But faith says, I'm going to trust you for this gap. So rest creates a gap. Giving creates a gap. When you give money away, it in effect says, God, here's where I think I need to be somewhere in the future. Things could break. I'm going to need money in retirement. My kid's going to go to college. All these issues are over here. Got to have my monthly provision of our budget, and I'm living here. And there's a gap between what I think I need and what I actually have. And that gap is the faith gap where God then shows up and helps you to either have the needs met, the ends to meet, or he gives you the grace to economize or just to be content with the way that life is. 
Through rest and through giving, we indicate that our real trust is in God. Number three, they both create a tangible expression of trust and worship. I mean, so much of our relationship with Christ is intangible. You can't see him. Even the concept last week we talked about of beholding. It's not, you can't get a hold of beholding. So much of our walk with Christ is intangible, and yet rest and generosity are not intangible. They're very tangible. One day a week for you to have a different mindset, to be committed that these are the things I'm going to do on this day so I can reorient myself. And you've got to figure out what those things are. So I'm not saying you can never check your email or you, you, you can't go out to a restaurant. What I am saying, though, is you've got to think through, how should this day be different? It's a tangible expression of what it means for you to be a follower of Jesus. It also means in terms of our giving, that you need to understand that your, how you handle your money says something very clearly about what is really valuable in your life. It says very clearly what is it that you really love and what you really treasure. And here are tangible expressions of our worship of our God. Let me drive this just a little bit even further. And that is this, that if you think that you can't gather in a corporate setting like this on a regular basis, if you, for instance, if you just decide I'm not coming to church anymore, I'm fine, I I love Jesus, but I don't do church, that, that doesn't work. Whether it's this church or some other church, you need to be in a regular gathering of God's people because I promise you, over a period of time, your soul will shrink and your heart will leak and you will begin to believe the lies of the world and instead of believing the truth of God's word, you need the corporate body of Christ. So a part of your worship on the Lord's Day needs to be gathering with God's people. It's very, very important. But it also means... That if you claim that you trust God, but it doesn't show up in your checkbook, I don't know how you can really say that you trust God. In fact, I would say you, you think you trust God, but the fact of the matter is you don't. Because if you do, it would show up in how you give. And I have verse after verse after verse that indicates that. And so it is a real and tangible way for us to give evidence that, yes, I'm real. This thing called Christianity, it's not just smack talk. It's real. It shows up in the ledger right there. And whether it's to this church or some other place of ministry, it needs to show up because it's a tangible expression. Number four, both of these things create community. There's something that we do together. When the people of Israel bought their gifts, they collectively built this tabernacle. I mean, many of you had a part in, in, in building this very facility and other parts of, of, of uh, this church campus. And it was something that we were able to do together together. And when we rest, come together today on the Lord's Day, we are doing it together, and we do it together much better than we would be able to do it alone. There's something refreshing, something powerful, something meaningful about being together in the context of the body of Christ. And finally, both of these things, rest and giving, they affirm what is really important to us. The choice to rest and the choice to give are powerful statements about what we really value. That's why they are in the context of the hinge of Exodus 35. Moses comes down the mountain, his face is aglow, and then he tells the people of Israel what they are to do to affirm that they get it, that God isn't like them, that he's holy and righteous, that he's given them commands, and that he's going to live among them. And the two things that God tells them to do are to observe Sabbath and to give. Why? Because those are two tangible things that the people of Israel could do to verify that they get it, who God is and who they are. They get it, that they are his people, and he is their supreme God. They get it, that he is more valuable than anything else, and it shows up in how they deal with their work and how they deal with their money. 
And I would argue that it's the same thing for us today. Rest reminds us that we are a rescued people, that we live by promise and not performance. Rest preaches to your soul. Rest is something you do because you can, because your debt has been paid. Life isn't about performance. And giving, giving affirms that life is not all about possessions, about security, about comfort, about a standard of living that is normal. Giving preaches the beauty of God. I can trust you and I believe in you more than I believe in the security that comes through my money. So maybe you can see why today. I hope you can. Why God would tell them to do these two things? Because they hit at the core of what it means to really trust and believe in this God who is calling a people for himself. Giving and rest are powerful statements about our belief and trust in God. Rest and giving are both celebrations and affirmations of God's grace. You rest and you give because God has been so gracious to you. And you rest and you give because in resting and in giving, you affirm, God, you are my treasure. More than work, more than money, I love and want you. And so in resting and in giving, you affirm who God is and who you are. So I want to encourage you today to rest well. I want to encourage you to give generously. Your soul needs it. They're celebrations and affirmations. Father, we thank you that your word speaks to the world in which we all live. And we know that there is um, any number of ways that our hearts could go all week long. There's a pace to the world. It's a pace to our own hearts. And whether it's business or child rearing or ministry, we can get our identity from the wrong things. And then we can hoard and covet get way too far over our heads into debt, convince ourselves we can't give. And in so doing, we remove ourselves out of a very important stream of God's, of your grace. So would you help us just to rest in you today? Would you forgive us for the countless ways that we don't affirm our trust in you? And would you give us faith to believe that we can rest and trust you for the gap and we can give and trust you for the gap, that you are greater than the gap that resting or giving creates. So help us, Lord. Our faith sometimes is so weak. And so help us even now just to rest in the beauty of who and what you are for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There'll be some folks up here afterwards who would love to pray with you and for you if there's a need in your life about this sermon or anything else going on, okay? They're here. God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.